now that the kids are gone, could I talk about the elephant in the room? Many churches do not ordain women in ministry. Lord God, as we search your scriptures, it is my prayer that you would speak clearly, that you would increase and I would decrease. Help us understand, Lord God. Amen. Many churches do not ordain women to ministry. Could we talk about that? Pastor Sarah, where are you sitting? Where are you at? There you are. I'm so pleased that God called you to ministry here. You know, pleased is the wrong word, though. Could I say the right word? I am blessed. And I'm not only blessed, not just me, but I know that so many of you here would agree with me. We are blessed that God has called you here. We are blessed that God has appointed you here. But I also want to recognize that you face an added challenge to ministry that I do not face. The ordained minister who also came up beside me and laid hands on you was Angela. And so I thought you might be here. I wasn't sure. But I thought, you know what? If Sarah and Angela are going to be here together, maybe the Lord is telling me I need to preach on something specific. As a woman in ministry, I know that both of you, at some point, have felt the judgment of some who do not feel it is appropriate that you are a woman in ministry, that you are an ordained pastor, that you have been duly recognized as being able to preach and teach in front of a group of men. How dare you? I think it would be almost impossible for any woman in ministry to say that you don't feel, in some form or another, that pressure. Angela, I know you have definitely dealt with this. And you come from a background and even from a place where that has been extreme. And it has been difficult and painful at times. Sarah, I know you have shared with me that there are those who just don't think it's right. And they might say, well, at least she's just a children's pastor. No. You know that ordination certificate that I just gave Sarah and that I gave you at family camp this year? Because we did the same thing at family camp for you. That certificate means that they are allowed to preach and teach in any capacity equal to any man. They are authorized by the church of God to be a pastor, a senior pastor, but also a children's pastor or a camp director. But you guys, by the certificates that we have given you, have equal authority to preach and teach as I or any man or anybody has. So I just want to say that. Don't mistake what's happened here today 
as only applying to associate pastors. They have authority the same as me. If there's ever a Sunday that I could talk about women in ministry and the Church of God's stance on it, it's today. So I'm going to. Where do we start? Well, let's see. Where do you suppose we should start? It's just hard to figure out where we should start. I'm just not sure where we should start with this issue. What are we supposed to do before we read this? For all of you visitors, this is kind of a thing for me. We must pray before we read the Word of God. Now, I've already prayed, but because this is super contentious, I'm going to pray again. Is that okay with everybody? Lord God, please speak to us through your word. Help us understand. Amen. So where should we start? Well, it seems like a really good place to start would be at the beginning. And the beginning um, would be the beginning of the church. So please turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 2. I want to show you the beginning of the church. The very first sermon that was ever preached is right here. Acts chapter 2, verses 14 through 21. Then Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice, and addressed the crowd. Fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These men are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. Now, before we go on, this, of course, is the very first sermon that was spoken right after the disciples received the Holy Spirit, right? And so they were speaking in tongues. And remember that speaking in tongues was like truly crazy and cool because everybody who was there could hear what they were saying in their own language. It was a movement of the Holy Spirit. It was amazing. It was a miracle. But now I want you to look. The first thing that Peter says in the first sermon that's empowered by the Holy Spirit, the first thing that gets said at the beginning of the church, you think this might be foundational. Everybody say, it might be foundational. Okay, that was kind of a little bit weak, but I said it kind of weird, so that's okay. He quotes the prophet Joel. I want you to, as I read this, I want you to think carefully about what Peter, inspired by the Holy Spirit, says. No, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my Spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they will prophesy. I will show wonders in the heaven above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and billows of smoke, the sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Now, that's the first Old Testament passage quoted at the beginning of the church. The first one. The first thing. Could I just show you again the two verses in the middle that make a big difference? In the last days, God says, 
Now, by the way, the last days, you think Peter is just talking about the very end of the world right here? No, because he's talking about, he's, he's preaching this to a group of people right then. He's not talking about some time 3,000 years in the future. He's talking about to this group, we just entered the last days. So he's saying, this is right now. We are in the last days right now because Jesus, the Christ, the anointed one of God, has ushered in the last days. We are now in the last days. The last days are not something that happens in the future, no matter what any left-behind novelization is going to tell you. By the way, I don't like the left-behind books. I think they're verging on heresy. Just throwing that out there. We can talk about that more later. What does Peter say? In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my my servants, both men and women. Is there any question about that right there? Is there a question? Does anybody have a question about that? Upon whom will the Spirit be poured out for the purpose of prophesying? Anybody question? And see, we think that prophesying is telling the future. That's not what prophesying is. The gift of prophesying in the New Testament is truth-telling in such a way that people's actions and lives are changed. That's what it means to prophesy. The gift of prophecy as explained in the New Testament, is the idea of when I speak God's word, it changes you. That's what it means to prophesy. Now, sometimes when you prophesy, you say things like, God is going to, Jesus is coming back in the future. Like, that is not a question. That is a fact. So when you prophesy, it's like this. Hey, Jesus is coming back in the future to judge the living and the dead. He's going to separate the sheep and the goats. Make sure you're a sheep. You're going to want to make sure you're on the sheep side. That's prophesying. Do you see that? Who does that? Who does that in the first passage, the first, the first one? Both men and women. Both men and women. And the young and the old. You see that? Both. And if you want to also get foundational, let's talk about doctrine. The second passage we can look at is Galatians chapter 3, verse 28, the Apostle Paul. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. These two passages from Acts and Galatians are the foundation. Can I suggest to you, that's the starting point. Other passages that you may have heard about this issue are not the starting point. They are descriptors that add detail to these passages. These are the starting points. I've been teaching you that you must read Scripture. You must read out of Scripture, not into Scripture. I've also been teaching you that we must keep what we read in context. And now I want to help you understand one more thing about Scripture. A lot of times people read Scripture 
flat. I want to explain what that means. In the Bible, there are different kinds of statements. There are different kinds of genres of Scripture. And it makes a big difference if you understand the genre of Scripture you're in or the type of statement that is being made in order to understand the Scripture. So, a very brief example of this. In the book of Genesis, it's historical narrative. It's what happened. So, you know the story of Lot and his daughters? You know that story? The kids are gone, and the only kids that are left are really small, so I'm going to say it. Um, Lot's daughters decided to get their dad really drunk. Remember that story? So they could sleep with him, so they could get pregnant. Okay, now let me ask you. That's in the Bible. So... Is that something we're supposed to do? Why not? It's in the Bible. It's what Lot did. Lot was a good guy. He was a follower of God. Shouldn't we do that? Why not? Why not? Because if you read the Bible flat, all of the Bible should apply the same. Do you see that? But of course we don't do what Lot does. Of course we don't do that. Because that's what happened, not what is supposed to happen every time moving forward. Did you get that? It matters that that is historical narrative. It is not doctrine. It is not law. Do you see that? We are not, nor were we ever supposed to read Scripture flat, as if you read it all the same. It was never the intention of God nor the people inspired by God that you would read the story of Lot that way, is it? Now, there are also different kinds of statements in the Bible. And they're they're meant to be taken differently depending on what kind of statements they are. So this next section, I give credit to Mike Smith, uh, a mentor of mine, and and he he, uh, helped bring this to light, but I think it's helpful. There are, there are a type of statement in the New Testament that are meant to be doctrinal statements, okay? So doctrine is teaching or correct teaching. Doctrine is the idea, we don't talk about it much because it's so stuffy, right? But doctrine is the idea of it's what we are to believe, it's the right thing to believe, the right thing to live our life by, okay? But not everything in the New Testament is doctrine, all right? You can't read it flatly. You see what I'm saying? Now, let me give you an example of doctrine because doctrine is the idea of thou shalt or thou shalt not. Right? These are not statements that are meant to be argued about. These are not statements that, are, that you quibble about. These are statements that are inspired by God and understood to be universal truths to the church of all time. Now, all of Scripture is God-breathed and inspired. So don't mishear me. I'm not saying some is and some isn't. But I am saying that some are doctrinal statements and some are not doctrinal statements. So, here in Galatians, we have a doctrinal 
statement. See it? I've already quoted it. There it is. Notice that the first person does not exist in the statement. In other words, Paul doesn't say, I think that there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free. You see that? He doesn't use first person language. He's making a statement. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. For you're all one in Jesus Christ. You know, this is a doctrinal statement of Paul. It's not open to debate. Do you see that? And notice, notice that we, don't, we shouldn't have debates and we don't have debates about a statement like this. Okay? Because it's not better if a Christian is an engineer compared to the Christian that works in McDonald's. Do you see that? Slave nor free. Yes, I just said that McDonald's workers are like slaves. I'm taking a little bit of an interpretive jump right there. But do you see what I'm saying? The slave nor free, that's about employment status. It's about your employment status in a culture, in a society. Now, we don't have slavery, but we still have employment status. It's more prestigious to be an engineer than it is to be the fry cook at McDonald's. Would you disagree with me? Of course, that's what it is. This statement is a doctrinal statement saying someone's Christianity or value as a Christian is not in any way connected to their employment status. Everybody got that? That's a doctrinal statement, right? And if you ever find somebody that says, I think an engineer is a better Christian than a McDonald's fry cook, what are you going to say to them? (laughs) Right? You are wrong. You are wrong doctrinally, because look at Galatians. Now, it's the same with Jew nor Greek. That's nationality. You're not a better Christian because you're Italian compared to the German. You see that? If anybody says, well, I'm an American, so I'm a better Christian to those Christians in Zimbabwe. Are you for real? Nobody would say that. It's bonkers. You wouldn't say that because that violates a doctrinal position in the New Testament. You don't say one Christian is better than another Christian because of their nationality. It's insane to say that. And of course, what's the third one up there? Male nor female. You don't say one Christian is a better Christian than another because of their gender. Do you? You don't. It doesn't make sense. That's a doctrinal statement. But there's a second type of statement, and I am oversimplifying this, make no mistake about it. But there's a second type of statement that I'm going to tell you about that will help explain why we can't read Scripture flat. Okay? In the New Testament, we find many places where the apostles write and explain their personal preferences. When they do this, they make a clear distinction between what they do personally and what others may or may not do as they choose. We can tell by the context and by the first-person language. There is no command or instruction involved. Can I give you an excellent example of this? 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 7 and 8. I wish that all men were as I am, 
But each man has his own gift from God. One has this gift, another has that. Now to the unmarried and the widows I say, it is good for them to stay unmarried as I am. Now, just think about this. Because there are Christians in the last 2,000 years that have turned this passage into a rule. Here's the rule. Christians are supposed to be unmarried. You think that's silly, right? Can I say it differently? Pastors should be celibate. Oh, yeah. That's a rule. There's this one church that's got like, I don't know, 1.3 billion members in it that holds to that rule. Right? Is that a doctrinal statement or not? What did I just tell you? If it's a first-person statement where the apostle is giving an opinion. You see, the problem is, we, and this is a strange problem, but we have, we've, elevated to the, we've elevated the Bible, which we should. It's God's word. It's our direction for life. But we've elevated, we've, we've elevated it in a way that we have to be careful about. Because we say things like, well, all scriptures God breathed. Yes. And then we say, and all scriptures should be applied equally to everybody. And all scripture is the same. There's no difference in it. What? Where did that, how did that sneak in there? Because it's really complicated to do what I'm talking about doing. You have to actually look at the context, don't you? You have to actually dig into Scripture to understand what Scripture's saying, not only to us, but starting first with the original audience. Remember, exegesis. You start first with the original audience. Understand what the original audience understood what the original author meant to the original audience, and then you interpret that for us today. We skip step one almost exclusively in the church. We skip the idea of, hey, this passage is, is, was meant originally for some people in the first century. We skip that part. And we just automatically say, well, what does this mean for us today? Well, you know what that means for us today? The really good Christians, the Christians that are better than the other Christians are unmarried. False. Now, if you haven't noticed, I give very high value to what the Apostle Paul says. (laughs) Right? I also think that the Apostle Paul was inspired by God to write this phrase in the letter to the Corinthians. So what do we do with this? Well, I think we must give this passage serious consideration. And if you read this passage in context, he's talking about people that are like, they they get widowed when they're very young. And the question is, should they stay widowed or should they get remarried? And he goes into this whole thing about, well, on the one hand, if they stay, if they stay single, this is, it's good because they can stay closer to God. But on the other hand, and again, the kids are gone. If they burn with lust, it's better to get married. Now, Hey, y'all, burning with lust is a good reason to get married. Yeah, I thought there would be more excitement about that one. (laughs) Can we not talk about this in the church? 
God put that drive in us, right? It's okay. It's okay. So Paul is saying here, I wish you could all be as I am, single, because when you're single, you can devote yourself fully to God. Because you know what happens when you get married? You got to spend some time on the spouse, okay? There's got to be some time spent there, right? So that's good. That's good to do that. But Paul is saying, it is good for them to stay unmarried as I am, if you can. But if, if I think the, the actual Greek translation, if there's fire in your loins, <laughs> woo, that's good stuff right there, right? So that's, it's, it's okay. You see how this is an opinion, an opinion from the Apostle Paul that we need to interact with and take seriously. But it's not doctrine. It's not a rule set for all times the way the Galatians passage is. And of course, you probably know where I'm going next. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 12. I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man. She must be silent. Pastor Sarah, Pastor Angela, I told you, one of your doctrinal statements that you had to write was the authority of women pastors. You had to write 16 doctrinal statements that my committee had to review with you, and one of those 16 was the authority of women in ministry. Now, those, those doctrinal statements, they, they can only be one page typed. And so there's always more you could write because any one of those 16 statements, you could write a book on, okay? So somehow you have to condense those into one page. And for both of you, I said the same thing to you. You have got to interact with 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 12. I said that to you, do you remember? I said that to you, do you remember? And I said, when you rewrite your statements, you need to interact with 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 12. To my knowledge, you guys haven't done that yet. But uh, I think you need to. So I'm saying again publicly, you got to understand, right? How does this verse fit with what I just gave you a piece of paper to do? Right? Can I suggest something to you? What's the first word right there? Oh, that's in first person. Oh, that's in first person. Well, that would fit... That would fit the category of personal opinion or practice based upon a situation. It falls in line with the passage about marrying or not marrying, not in line with the passage about there's neither slave nor Greek. Did you get that? Could we start there, please? Because a lot of people want to start here. They don't want to start with Galatians. They don't want to start with Joel being quoted in the first sermon. They want to start here. This is not the place to start when we talk about women in ministry. Now, does this inform us? Of course it informs us. It's Scripture. It's God-breathed. So why in the world would Paul say this? Did I mention something about keeping things in context at one point? Did I say that? I mentioned that. That's an important thing to do in Scripture is to keep things in context. This is in the book of 1 Timothy. Do you know, 
1 Timothy, Titus, and 2 Timothy are the last three letters that we have from the Apostle Paul. They are near the end of his life, near the end of his ministry. And by this time, let's think about the context, Paul is going out and he is talking to these, these people groups and he starts a church and when the church starts, he goes to the next church, right? So he's, he's going on this missionary journey. He actually took four missionary journeys, going around planting the good news. But a lot of times, after he would leave one, they would start having questions, the ones that he had left. And so they would communicate with Paul via a letter, we've got questions, or we've got things that are messed up. Some of the letters that we have, like 1 Corinthians, are Paul's responses in letter form to churches that had things messed up. So what is 1 Timothy? 1 Timothy is a letter to Timothy. Timothy was Paul's protege. So Paul was the mentor. Timothy was the mentee. Now, Paul couldn't be everywhere. And so sometimes instead of, instead of being able to go back to churches and set them straight, sometimes he would send them a letter. But every so often there was a church that was really messed up. He really needed to go back to get things straightened out. But sometimes he couldn't. One of those letters was the letter to the church in Ephesus. Because there was a church in Ephesus, and he wrote a letter to the Ephesians. <laughs> That's Ephesians, right? But we know that after he sent the letter to the Ephesians, we know that the Ephesus church went off the rails. Okay? The Ephesus church went off the rails so bad that Paul needed to go back there, but he couldn't because he was in prison. Kind of hard to go to a church when you're in prison. But you know who wasn't in prison at that time? Timothy wasn't in prison. So Paul said to Timothy, I want you to go to the church in Ephesus, and I want you to get them back on track. So Timothy went to Ephesus, and he worked with the people in Ephesus, but they didn't really respect him because he was young. And so Timothy sent word back to Paul, I'm having trouble. These people won't listen to me. And so Paul sent a letter back to Timothy to help him figure out what to do with the church in Ephesus. That's the letter of 1 Timothy. And it was still off the rails, so he had to send another letter. That's Second Timothy. So what was going on in this church? Well, look at 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 6 and 7. He's talking about the false teachers who have gotten in that church. And Paul writes, in, They are the kind who worm their way into homes and gain control over weak-willed women who are loaded down with sins and are swayed by all kinds of evil desires, always learning but never able to acknowledge the truth. In the church in Ephesus, there was a group of women who were always learning from false teachers, but they were never able to acknowledge the truth. So do you know what Paul told Timothy to tell them? Shut up. the women, because they're spreading false doctrine. 
it's not meant to be an injunction for all time. And we know this for lots of more reasons than just this. Like the fact that many of Paul's leaders and fellow workers in the church were women. Mary, the mother of John Mark, Acts 12. Aphia in Philemon 2. Nympha in Colossians 4.15. Lydia in Acts 16.15. Phoebe in Romans 16 and in Acts 16. And Paul mentioned all kinds of women who were leader in the church in his letters. Euodia and Syntyche in Philippians 4. Again, Phoebe, Romans 16. Priscilla in Romans 16. By the way, have you ever, when you read Romans, you see Priscilla and Aquila. He always lists them as Priscilla and Aquila. Aquila was the guy. Priscilla was the woman. He always lists Priscilla first because she was the one leading the ministry. Mary in Romans 16.6, Persis in Romans 16.12, Tryphena in Romans 16.12, Tryphosa in Romans 16.12, Junia in Romans 16.7. And if that's not enough, what about in the Old Testament, what did God do? How about Deborah, the judge? How about Miriam, Moses' sister and leader of the, of the people? Holda, Naodia in Nehemiah in 16. 14. Hold in 2 Kings 22.14. Anna in Luke 2.36, which is before Jesus. And of course, again in the New Testament, Philip's daughters who prophesied in Acts 21.9. The Old and the New Testament are full of women preachers. Did you hear that part? The Old and the New Testament are full of women preachers and women leaders and deaconesses in the churches. Do not take one verse out of context and tell me that that's what you've based your entire doctrinal stance on when the verse you chose wasn't even a doctrinal verse. You can't read it flat. Oh, you didn't expect to get this sermon today when you came to this service, and you're wondering. When is the barbecue going to be served? (laughs) Our church of God, our movement that started in 1881, from the moment of the conception of the church of God, we have had women preachers who have been powerful in word and deed. From the moment that we started this movement, and of course, it follows back. And by the way, in our church, I said this morning in Sunday school, because in Sunday school we talked about the history of our church here in Bertha. And I said that I am the 20th senior pastor, the 20th senior pastor of our church. But I listed one couple as two. They were a couple, and they were both the senior pastors of this church. Who were they? John and Corrine Long. Corrine was the preacher, right? She was quite a bit better than John, is what I've heard. I actually met John and Corrine Long because their son, John, who also was a pastor of this church in Bertha, was my pastor for the first 20 years of my life in Brookings. I knew John and Corrine Long. 
Kareen was a powerful preacher. Right here. Pastor Sarah, Pastor Angela, you are ordained pastors of the church of God, powerful in word and deed through the gifting of the Holy Spirit in your life, and I recognize you as equals. Let no one say otherwise. Or if they do, send them to me. (laughs) Would you pray with me? And I will also pray for the meal so that we can simply begin eating. Lord God, I am thankful that you have called Pastor Sarah to ministry, to ordained ministry, and Pastor Angela, of course. I am thankful, Lord, for this day of celebration. I am thankful for the food we're about to eat and for the fellowship that's about to be had. And in the name of Jesus Christ, I ask for your anointing and blessing on the ministry of these women. Pour out your spirit on them, Lord. It is the last days. In Jesus' name, amen.